6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. We never enter the Word of God without prayer, so let's do borrow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for this incredible gift you've given us. We pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you would open our lives to your word, that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of our coming King. As we commit this coming hour and ourselves into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our coming King. Amen. We really are entering a treasure, and the Bible is a treasure in many, many ways. But some of its richest treasures are in some of those phenomenal passages. Now we're in the, studying the epistles of the Thessalonians, and last, in the last session we took not only chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, we took enough of chapter 4 deliberately so that we could leave this next session, this coming session, this session, to the critical last part of chapter 4. So we, we got the, the uh, practical part of it, so to speak, out of the way. But we're in 1 Thessalonians 4, part 2. Because last time we took chapter 3 and the first 12 verses of chapter 4, we did that deliberately to have a clear hour here to focus on that particular portion of Scripture that probably has more controversy about, around it than probably any other thing in the Scripture. And we're going to study in this coming hour, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, but verses 13 to the end of the chapter, okay? This is undoubtedly the most preposterous doctrine in fundamental Christianity. Let's just admit that to ourselves. This belief that we hold has got to sound pretty weird to anyone that doesn't know their Bible. In fact, it sounds pretty weird to some people who think they know their Bible, so I won't... Uh, Go, I won't go down that path. You see, before the millennial kingdom, Jesus would leave and go to heaven. He would prepare a place for them in heaven, his believers. And he would come back to receive his own to himself. He said that, and we're going to examine that passage. In other words, Jesus made it clear that he would take his believers to glory before he set up the kingdom on the earth. Once you realize that, you get, suddenly get confronted with the reality there's got to be two events where he gathers his own in order to come back with his own. So it isn't, there isn't a single second coming of Christ. We use that term precisely for when he actually returns to the earth to set up his kingdom. But there's an event prior to that that we're going to be exploring. Now I want you to notice it was a promise to the church that the Holy Spirit would take up residence in them and that a specific place was reserved for them, separate from the return to the earth. And that is from Zechariah 12 in the Old Testament, and chapter 14 in the Old Testament. And we'll look at some of those. 
The early Christians were looking for some to be taken home without dying. That's why they were confused. Now, by the way, Paul taught them all this in the first three weeks of their Christian experience. What's amazing to many is that in those first three weeks, he taught them all this stuff. Now, some of them in the following weeks had passed away somehow, and so they were shook. They thought they had somehow missed something. And that's what he's dealing with in this letter. They were not concerned about their salvation, nor that Christ would be coming for them. They knew that. They knew that there were a number of resurrections. In fact, they called their burial places cemeteria, uh, which are dormitories. Actually, what the term actually means. Cemeteries really means dormitories. Their real question was, when? When is he going to come for them? And the very fact that they have this concern in their mindset is an argument for the early date of this letter. And that's what Paul is correcting their misconceptions by writing them from Corinth. And here are the verses we're going to explore in this session. Let's just read it through first. Paul is writing, says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep. See, that was their worry. What's going on here, see? For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Wow, what a passage. But it has this caught up, that phrase, we call the rapture. People say the word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible. Wrong, it does if you have a Latin Bible. You see, not in your English. The, the Greek word there is harpazo, and we'll explore that as we go forward here. Let's just take it verse by verse and start to unpack this thing. Paul says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Now the word ignorant here is agnos in the Greek. Ignorant, that's when we get the word ignorant. The Latin is ignoramus, you know. If you're an agnostic, that goes well over cocktail parties. Well, I'm an agnostic. Now put that in the light. I'm an ignoramus. It doesn't ring quite the same way, but uh, okay. Even as others which have no hope, do you realize that the heathen are hopeless? There's nothing to base their hope on. In contrast to what in, we get this, the term the blessed hope. There's no Christian that would deny that he, he doesn't embrace the blessed hope, but most Christians don't, don't know what is the blessed hope. It is the Lord's return. That's our hope. That's in Titus 2.13 is where we get that phrase, incidentally. But okay, how certain is our hope? Or let me be more personal. How certain are you of your hope? See, it depends upon our certainty concerning the death and resurrection of Christ. His resurrection is God's seal and evidence of ours. If you have doubt about Christ's resurrection, you can't possibly have comfort or confidence in your own. 
Because it's the validation of the whole program. And so that's why that's so important to really embrace, understand, deal with it. See, those who have not taken, do not take us coming seriously have not been at the cross enough. You have to be at the foot of the cross. You need to understand what really happened there and what the significance is. Pulpits who do not declare his death and resurrection can hardly expect to preach his return. The great tragedy in America is the absence of declaration from the pulpits of Christ's death and resurrection. They're glad to talk about all kinds of social problems and things that we need to correct or this, that, and the other thing. No, no, no. That's what the gospel's all about. That Christ died for his sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the kernel. That's the issue. That's the crucial issue in the entire universe. So, so one of the questions you need to ask yourself as we go forward, do you really love the Lord's appearing? Is that the primary priority in your life? It should be. The more you know about him and the more you know about what he did, the more that should become the primary priority, prioritization of everything in your life. Is it a living expectation day by day for each of us? It should be. So Paul continues, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. That should give you comfort for those that Christians that have passed away. Okay? So if we have confidence in Christ, we know that those that sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And see, Paul did actually receive direct communications from the Lord. You find that in Acts 9, 22, Galatians, he makes reference to that in 1 Corinthians 11. He, makes, he got direct training, communication, what have you, from Jesus himself. Many people overlook that. But that's clearly what the scripture tells us. But then, what sleep in Jesus will God bring with him? See, we, we, when we die, we go immediately into the presence of the Lord. The body sleeps, the soul does not. Don't, don't get into these concept of soul sleep. That's not, that's not scriptural. We could spend a lot of time on that, but we've got other things to cover here. Will God bring with him? How can Jesus bring his with him unless he's gathered them first? Now, if we've died, we're with them. But what about those that are his, that are on the earth, still alive? That's what he's going to deal with here. That's what leads to this peculiar perception that is clearly described in the scripture. We speak of this as Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and elsewhere. But that first fruits implies a later fruit following. And let's just understand that. If he's the first fruits, there must be others that are following behind him. So here Paul continues, For this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord. Now that's something when Paul sometimes will express an opinion, he'll say so. But here he's proclaiming something that God told him to proclaim. For this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord. Understand the, the authority that he's putting behind this statement. That we, which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, shall not prevent them which are asleep. Now that's an unfortunate old English term. The word prevent is used here to really mean precede. We use that word a little differently, like a restraining thing. This is the term, the translation here in the King James is leaning on the old English meaning of the word prevent. What it really means, the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep. 
when will the dead in Christ be risen? That's the, that's the concern, you see, of the, the, the Thessalonian readers, because some of their friends have died, and they thought, they all had this feeling that, well, we're all going to get caught up with Christ. What about those that have died? Okay. And so, we uh, who are alive and remain shall not precede those that are asleep. They're going to rise first and we'll join them, is what he's going to say here in a minute. Okay? The dead in Christ shall be raised just before we go to see the Lord. There he's addressing those that are still alive. Do you see the problem? Okay. Let's go ahead. The question was not, is the Lord coming? The question is, are we going to be with him? Or, but rather, what is going to happen to our loved ones who preceded us in death? That, that's their concern. Now, let's talk a little bit about resurrection bodies, okay? Because we're going to be dealing with a resurrection here. Let's summarize what we think we know about Jesus' body after his resurrection, okay? Now, I want you to notice something. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, it was not what we call a resurrection. He's brought back to life, but he died again. When we use the resurrection here, we're talking about that unique thing that happened to Christ, and we know from other scriptures what's going to happen to us too. What, is, what happened to Christ? What is his body like? First of all, we discovered from Luke 24 and John 20, he could apparently appear and disappear at will. He shows up suddenly, and he disappears. So his body has some very strange properties. He could move through solid walls. They gathered, in, in a, if they were frightened, they were in a locked room. Four walls, locked doors, locked windows. He shows up in the middle of them. They think he's a ghost. He says, handle me and see. A spirit is not a flesh and bone like you see me have. He's tangible on the one hand, and yet he's, his body has some very peculiar properties. It could be seen and felt palpable. That's in Matthew 28 and Luke 24. He could eat food, although apparently it wasn't necessary. But I, I, you know, it's actually kind of interesting to me. He never appears after his resurrection without eating. He's my kind of guy, okay? Though he is glorified, he could be recognized. And there's a whole study about that that I won't derail us here chasing down that one. But there's no more experience of death, aging, crying, mourning, sorrow, or pain. Revelation 21 covers all that. No death, no aging, no crying, no mourning, no sorrow, no pain. Some mathematical experts suspect that he must have, that we, present, you and I live in ten dimensions, not just three. Three spatial dimensions plus time. We live in four dimensions. The common perception in most particle physics and so forth is that we actually experience, we are in ten dimensions. Four are directly measurable. Six we can only infer by indirect methods. That causes some experts to suspect that Jesus has more than those ten. And it may be that whatever he has, he gave up two dimensions to make it possible for us to be there. And it may be, I think we'll spend an eternity discovering what it really cost him. The physiological pain of the cross that we obviously perhaps can perceive some of that. Maybe just the tip of the iceberg. We have no grasp of what it really cost him to have us be his beneficiary. We do know from Philippians 3 and 1 John 3 that all believers will be given new bodies that are like the glorious body of our Lord. Especially 1 John 3 too. Beloved, it's not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. We won't see a representation because we're going to enjoy the same uh, reality that He has. 
Wow, that's quite a statement. See, if that wasn't true, we probably wouldn't be better off if we died at age 25. In other words, you're not going to inherit the body you died with. Okay. And you can go through all kinds of speculations about that. But the resurrection does imply death. And that's, it's also mentioned, it may surprise you, in the oldest book of the Old Testament, in Job 14, but especially in Job 19, starting at verse 25. This is in the Old Testament, the oldest book of the Bible. Job says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. What a statement of faith by Job. Even though my eyes have decayed, in my flesh I will see God. He knows he's due for a body resurrection. Job, way back there. Now, some of the modern translations butcher this, by the way. No, you go back to the Hebrew, the King James is correct. I won't go down those paraphrase paths. They got it all messed up. See, in other words, what Paul's going to be dealing with, they're not all are going to die. There's some of us hearing this that will not experience death. There are a couple in the past that did not experience death, Enoch and Elijah being two of them. Well, it's a point under man once to die, and after this the judgment. People quote Hebrews 9.27. That's the general rule. There are some exceptions. Lazarus was the exception. He died twice. The widow of Nain's son. Jairus' daughter. You can listen. That's a general rule. That phrase in Hebrews 9.27 is a refutation of reincarnation. And there are two that didn't experience death. Enoch and Elijah. There are exceptions. They're typological exceptions, perhaps, but that's another study. The rapture is a transformation we learn from Philippians 3. We are transformed in a moment. And by the way, that term in the Greek is atmos. It means something which cannot be divided. The whole field of particle physics is based on the discovery that everything we experience in our physical reality, length, weight or mass, Time, all these things are made up of indivisible units. There is no period of time that is shorter than 10 to the minus 43 seconds. All time is made up of units of that size. Every length, energy, mass, length, time, all are made up of indivisible units. And that's what's so interesting about one of those units we're going to encounter in our study tonight. Let's get back to 1 Thessalonians, up to verse 16, chapter 4. Okay, here he starts. Paul says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven, doesn't say come to the earth, shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. He's going to continue here. A shout. That's a shout of command. And it's just like we had in chapter 11 with Lazarus. Remember Christ, they have him sealed there, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. Do you know why he said, Lazarus, come forth? Otherwise, they all would have. What do you think that shout is going to be for? I would not be surprised if each one of us hear our name when he shouts. But that's just a suspicion on my part. 
the Lord himself will send from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. Wow. Now, we could go into shouts on the Damascus Road and all that, but let's just keep moving here. Uh, the voice of the archangel. That's not necessarily Michael, as in it is in Jude 9, but it might be. And we could talk all about Michael's role. He's a warrior of the Lord's host. And the battle, he battles with the forces of darkness on behalf of Israel. So a lot of this even probably happened even before Eden, but that gets into this whole gap theory business and all that. It certainly has to do with Ephesians 6 and the armor of God and also the peculiar glimpse we get of that invisible world in Daniel chapter 10 and passages like that. So uh, there's a whole, this is a whole deviant study here. Those of you that want to get into it can get into it if you want. But with a trump of God, now boy has this caused misunderstandings. What trump is this? It's the trump of God. Where do we see the trump? Not the trump of angels, trump of God. We only find that twice in the Bible. We find it here and in Exodus 19 when the, at Sinai when the law was given. The trump of God. And it's only here and there. Now what a lot of people want to do, they want to make that trump of God a trump of judgment. You should not confuse that phrase by Paul here as with the seven trumpet judgments of the book of Revelation. Those are angels sounding those trumpets, and they, they sequence seven specific events there. They don't assemble anyone. This is an assembly trumpet. Those are not. They are not symbols of salvation. They are not symbols of deliverance. They are symbols of judgments on a Christ-rejecting world in, in Revelation chapter 8 and following. Now, what about the last trump of 1 Corinthians 15? We're going to encounter that in the passage shortly. The last trump, the trump of 1 Corinthians 15 that we're about to encounter is not the last trump in the Bible. It's the last of a series, but not the last trump in the Bible. Why? Because there are also a trump that calls the elect in Matthew 24, 31. There are also trumpets blown for a thousand years through the millennium. So when you say the last trump, you don't mean the last forever. You mean the last of a series. Big difference here. And uh, we have a whole study of the Feast of Trumpets in our Feast of Israel grieving package. So now we get to verse 17, and this is the biggie. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them. Who's them? The dead in Christ that rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord on the earth? No, in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. We will not pass through death. This last generation. Now here's this they shall be caught up. The word in the Hebrew, excuse me, in the Greek, is harpazo. It means to seize, to snatch away by a force which cannot be resisted. That's what the word harpazo in the Greek means. It's not going to be a choice. Hey guys, come on. You want to come along? No, no. He is going to snatch you out. That's why Hal Lindsey loves to call it the great snatch, you know. Well, it is. That's good Greek, actually, okay? The word is used as when a centurion orders his troops to take Paul by the force in order to rescue him from a possible lynching. In Acts 23, centurion actually saves his life by arresting him, snatches him away from the mob that's about to kill him. The term there is harpazo. Same word. Now, in the Latin, in the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible, it's a derivative of rupturo. And so... Uh, now, clouds, by the way, we could go into a whole study of clouds, but they always 
whenever there's a theophany, an appearance of Christ, there's always clouds. It was at Sinai when the law was given. It's in the, when the tabernacle was established in Exodus 40, Solomon's temple. Uh, we see that several times. And clouds and darkness always surround him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. The transfiguration had clouds in Matthew 17. And of course, at the ascension, he ascends up into the cloud. So that shouldn't surprise us. We could, the church will be removed as suddenly and as mysteriously as it began. And that's what we're seeing here. So we're right now in this whole thing called the rapture. And as I, I, I like, I'm fond of admitting uh, that this would seem to be the most preposterous belief of biblical Christianity. The word is arpazo. That's in the Greek. And we're going to divide this study into the promise of it, the process that's going to be used, the purpose of it, the prophetic profile that points to it, the problems with it, and the proposal. Now you can tell that this is a seminary-sanctioned presentation because of the alliteration. They all start with P, so they must be true, right? And I'm being, I'm being facetious, of course, because I'm always, I'm always amused at how people try to get alliteration in their sermon outlines. Well, I'm guilty of that here because it seemed to fit. So I can't help but poke fun at myself for the alliteration that we see here. So we're going to go through each one of these as we go here now. But I, I love to start this discussion with a quote by Richard Feynman, uh, who's the, the, one of the most prominent particle physicists on the planet Earth. And he makes an interesting statement about particle physics that I can't resist sticking in here. He says, I think it's safe to say that no one understands quantum mechanics. In fact, it is often stated of all the theories proposed in this century, the silliest is quantum theory. Some say that the only thing that quantum theory has going for it, in fact, is that it is unquestionably correct. <laughs> and that, that's, that's a typical form of Richard Feynman's hu humor. But that same attitude could be applied to the rapture because it is obviously the most preposterous doctrine of biblical Christianity. The only thing it's got going for us, I think I'll show you why, it's unquestionably scriptural. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.